This is a re-recording of episode one of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast. I had no idea how to use this equipment that you see down below, and um, the audio is really, really rough. So it's a story worth telling. It's a great Hollywood story that is not particularly well known. And it starts with a book called The Bonfire of the Vanities. It was a runaway bestseller by the great Tom Wolfe, who also wrote um, The Right Stuff, the book which became a highly praised, award-winning movie, which is now 40 years old, but an incredible film about the early days of the United States space program. Well, Tom Wolfe wrote a book called The Bonfire of the Vanities. It was published in the mid-'80s, and it was a pitch black comedy, a vicious, cutting satire of life in certain segments of New York City in the mid-80s. And he just took shots at everybody. He ripped every possible social class, ethnic group, religion. Everybody felt the sting of Tom Wolfe's pen. But the book was highly praised, beautifully written, and it was my father's favorite fiction book ever. Number one. He read it three times from cover to cover. It's not something that he did. He usually read a book once, and it went onto his shelf, never to be touched again. The bonfire was just so damn good and so compelling that he picked it up two more times. And I remember when he read it the third time, he said, doesn't even matter that I know what's coming. It's just so fucking good. This book is so good, Jared. Now, I never read the book. I actually saw the movie, and then I'm like, nah, I don't want to read the book. But that's beside the point. It was a huge literary property that was discussed in Hollywood for a number of years before Warner Brothers decided to go forward with Brian De Palma, who was coming off of Scarface, and he had done a lot of terrific thrillers, Dressed to Kill, and Carrie was him, and Blowout, which was fucking vicious. Um, and he'd had a dip in his career the previous year with Casualties of War, which is really unfortunate because Casualties of War, I think, is a brilliant film. It's really good, but it's tough. It's a difficult movie to watch. It's a Vietnam War film, but not really a Vietnam War film. It's set during the Vietnam War, and it is a very grueling experience to sit through. And audiences didn't want to sit through it, despite the strong cast, John Leguizamo, very young, John C. Riley, and the main components, uh, Sean Penn, who's absolutely fire in that role. Just, I mean, he's an incredible actor, we all know that. Uh, but he is especially stunning in that film. And Michael J. Fox, who was doing something different, and I believe it's certainly the best dramatic performance of his career. But the film bombed, and any time, even a director of De Palma's stature, if you're not on the Spielberg, Scorsese, James Cameron, Chris Nolan, Darren Aronofsky, if you're not on that level, and this applies today, but also back in the 80s, if you're a guy who is well-respected, but you have a film that has high hopes and it bombs, you're nervous about your next project. 
you'll take any big project that comes your way. And Brian De Palma signed on to direct the adaptation of Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities. And an author by the name of Julie Salomon, she wrote for the Wall Street Journal, was hired to follow him literally around pre-production, production, and post-production of what was expected to be an award-winning film. The book was so good, they just had to get the casting right, and here come the Oscars. But it's not really about all of that. This story is about Hollywood. Then and now, and probably always, which is that so many people get things incredibly wrong. Sometimes it all works out in the end, sometimes it doesn't. But it's part of the magic of movies, is that they're created by people who make mistakes, people who are certain of something that ends up being completely not certain, and don't think, well, this can't be, and it is. And as the famous author and screenwriter that I've talked about before, William Goldman, one of the greatest quotes ever about the movie business, you can take it as a, as a crack or you can take it as just an acknowledged reality. Nobody knows anything. So Brian De Palma got his cast together, terrific cast, again, then is now, but especially for the time you had Tom Hanks playing the lead, a Wall Street bond trader named Sherman McCoy, too young to be making so much money for what he's doing, quite frankly. Bruce Willis, in a bit of cockeyed casting, which was, <laughs> looking back, it was a mistake. But Bruce Willis was cast as a reporter by the name of Peter Fallow. Uh, he was written as British in the book. And John Cleese, who was coming off of Fish Called Wanda and was a fairly big star, even over here, that's probably who should have gotten the nod. But Bruce was a huge star on the strength of Die Hard, and Die Hard 2 was in the can, I believe, at the time. And they weren't sure about Tom Hanks in that kind of role. This is not the Tom Hanks of all the Oscars. This is when he was trying to find his footing in dramatic roles. And this is dramatic and comedic in equal measure. So the studio felt they needed Bruce uh, to get people in the seats. Not the worst idea. And Melanie Griffith, was cast as the mistress, the key role of the mistress to Tom Hanks' character. And you had Morgan Freeman in the cast. That was another probable mistake, playing uh, a Jewish judge. Bit of a stretch, no offense. Didn't really make sense then, it doesn't really make sense now. But that was the kind of thing that the studio and the producers behind the film felt they had to do because there was so much vicious satire, making fun of the various ethnic groups and social classes, that the goal was we have to have some kind of a balance here. If we're going to have a stereotypical Jewish character, we have to have a positive Jewish character. If we're going to have a woman who is basically a glorified escort, we have to have favorites. So they were trying to essentially, they were taking the sting out of Wolf's book. They were doing it deliberately because they felt it was the only way that it would fly in, in that climate. You know, and we see things today where people get angry because they're, this is woke or this is virtue signaling. And I'm the guy that points out that there's nothing new. 
that Hollywood has been using focus groups for I don't even know how many decades, that they've been doing test screenings and asking very precise, targeted questions, like what I just brought up, just to see where the audience's heads are at. Because they're all just trying to make a movie, make money, and hopefully win awards. Certainly the big studios, it's not their uh, modus operandi to try to offend as many people as possible. That's mostly, you know, independent films where you, you can do that and you can get away with it. But big budget studio films, they're not trying to reinvent the wheel, folks. They're really not. So it was a bit of a fraught production. There were some issues. Um, Bruce Willis, man, I love Bruce Willis. To his credit, he was the only cast member who seemed to sense the film was in big trouble. And there were a couple of points, and this is in Julie Salomon's book, which she wrote as it was going on. She, I'm sure she added things after the film release and you know time went by. But as the film went on, she was stunned that Bruce Willis was disrupting takes and seeming to call out Brian De Palma, um, which isn't right. He shouldn't have done that. But Bruce was asking for more takes and he was asking to confer with the director on set because he just didn't, his, his kind of spidey sense was telling him, the scene isn't gonna work. This is not funny. This is supposed to be a riot. This is not coming across right. So Bruce thought they were in trouble. Didn't say anything other than the occasional moments conferring with the director. You know, and De Palma was not a guy who was looking to fight with his cast. Melanie Griffith showed up through, halfway through filming with a new set of boobs. Probably not the best idea, but you know, you gotta deal with it in Hollywood. You gotta roll with the punches. So De Palma managed to finish his film the way that he wanted to. And it's not like the studio was ripping him for overspending, over budget. I mean, there are some funny stories that Salomon gets into about the people on the crew who were not really below the line, that they were like heads of certain departments on the film that were insisting they fly first class. There was a lot of wasteful spending. There's a great phrase for you, right? You hear it all the time, wasteful spending. There was a lot of wasteful spending on that film where guys arguing that their entire department of craftspeople deserve to fly first class, and we're not gonna, you know, they almost threatening to stage revolts. Stupid stuff like that happens on any movie. Back then, there's no Twitter, there's no social media. Nobody's reporting that the head of the location, that, you know, the guy whose job it is to scout locations and he has a whole team, that he's holding up, he's holding up the show because he demands to sit in first class. Nowadays, that would have been reported immediately and he probably would have either gotten fired or he would have just sat in coach and not complained at all. Anyway, that was one of my favorite parts in Salomon's book. It was a whole two pages of this guy demanding to play first class. It was, and I was rooting for him too. He's like, my fat ass won't fit in a coach seat. You gotta get, you gotta do something for me. Gosh. So with all of this stuff going on, probable miscasting. I and mean, there were a lot of people that thought that Tom Hanks was all wrong for Sherman McCoy. The character was uh, originally conceived, they were imagining kind of a William Hurt type, um, you know, good looking, lighter haired, um, almost having an attitude and a condescending air to him. And young Tom Hanks did not have a condescending air to him. But the William Hurt of movies like The Doctor, absolutely. But it wasn't to be. So they finished the film, and De Palma had one of the all-time great cinematographers, Vilmos Zsigmond. They did amazing works. And that's the thing. The movie could be, 
disastrous. It could be, oh, I don't like the movie. Whether or not you're familiar with the book, and I believe the movie plays a lot better now than when it came out. The movie looks gorgeous. New York City, circa 1990, it's never looked better on film. It is, there are so many incredible shots that are literally breathtaking. There's a shot of a, of a Concorde jet landing that is absolutely, it's one of the most beautiful images you, you'll ever see on cellular. So De Palma went to work editing his film, long process, and um, he finished, not a director's cut, but kind of an assembly cut where there may have been some spots where there was a temporary musical score, but he had assembled enough where it was close to a, it was close enough to a finished product where he was comfortable showing it to the executives who had funded it at Warner. Around the same time, Warner Brother, one of their other big prestige projects, Goodfellas, directed by Brian De Palma's old buddy, and the gentlemen are still friends to this day, along with Spielberg, Coppola. I just love that. I, I, I get such a kick out of the fact that those guys who came up through the ranks together were friends and are still friends. But De Palma's good pal, fellow New Yorker, De Palma went to Columbia, Marty went to my old alma mater, New York University. Marty had Goodfellas, and Goodfellas was further along in the process. It was, well, in Marty's mind, it was done. He, he had wrapped his, his cut, and uh, the film was getting set to premiere at the New York Film Festival. So this is like early September of 1990 for perspective. I was in 11th grade at the time. Martin Scorsese and Brian De Palma were both still in their 40s. De Palma may have just turned 50 now that I'm thinking about it. He's slightly older than Marty. The studio, according to Julie Salomon's account of this, the studio executives had Martin Scorsese in to screen his film, which had been a pretty big budget. You know, it's not easy to, to nail all those time periods. We're not talking about using CGI to recreate New York City of the 1960s, 70s, 80s, whatever. Everything you saw in Goodfellas, all of the location work, the costuming, the look of the streets, the look of the suburbs, the cars, all of that stuff, was done during production. None of it was done in a computer. Nowadays, the George Lucas type of filmmaker, not criticizing, would try to do certain things in a computer to save money. Scorsese would never do that. It's not his way. He wants things that's, you know, he had the issue with the Irishman, with the CGI. He really was never entirely comfortable with it. But everything you saw there cost money. Everything cost money. Nothing's cheap. So Martin Scorsese screamed, Goodfellas for the studio executives at Warner Brothers. And the executives thought the film was an absolute disaster. They were completely gobsmacked. They could not believe that Martin had blown all of their money on this piece of crap. Now, history tells us that that is one of the worst takes ever. But sometimes, and Roger Ebert, the late great film critic, talked about this. Even though the studio executives, they had the script, they commissioned Everything that Martin did, there have been stories in Hollywood of directors kind of just going off on their own and doing their own thing and going rogue or renegade. Martin did not. He was taking notes from them throughout the process. So I don't know what their issue was, but he made exactly the movie that they paid for. They just thought it was terrible. There's no good guy. There's no real plot. 
It's 30 years of life in the mafia. It's a bunch of people getting butchered and bloodied and, and murdered in horrible ways. Why would anybody ever want to see this film? So Martin Scorsese was, of course, in shock. And the studio executives were going to take the film away from him and either recut it or do a, I hate to say it, a Batgirl and simply do a tax write-off and say, you know what, maybe he'll get it better next time, but this is unreleasable trash. We're, we're just fucked here. We're going to have to write this whole thing. Scorsese, 48 years old at the time, maybe not even, he might have only been 47, pled his case. He said, everything that I just said to you, guys, I made, this, I made the movie you asked me to. You gave me notes every day. You watched the dailies. I don't understand. I think that you simply had the wrong idea as to what the finished product was going to be. But if you're asking me, do I think I did a good job? I think this might be the best movie I've ever made. Don't tell me that it's unreleasable, please. We all put our heart and soul into this. Pesci's going to win an Oscar. You've got, you got to release this movie. He's incredible. Did you not get that out of his performance? Did you not see the strength of Lorraine Bracco? Do you not see the genius of Leota? Guys, I think you've got the wrong take here. Please, it's supposed to open the New York Film Festival. Will you allow me the courtesy for all the work I've done? You know that I gave you my best effort here. Will you allow it to open the New York Film Festival? He talked them into it. History, thanks Martin Scorsese, again, not just that he's 81 and continuing to produce quality motion pictures, but that he was able to talk those wrong-headed studio executives into showing his film at the New York Film Festival in 1990. So as that's going on, as the studio executives are scratching their head, how did we commission so much money for Marty to make this fucking stink bomb, this disaster of a movie? Godfather, my foot, this film's off, whatever they were saying. Brian De Palma screams his cut for the same executives and an audience which includes another one of his old friends, Steven Spielberg, Scorsese was not, was not there. The lights come up at the end of De Palma's assembly cut and the Warner executives are lighting victory cigars. That is how confident they are that De Palma, with an 80 to 90% assembly cut, has knocked it out of the park. Spielberg reads the room we, we don't know to this day whether he was being truthful here or whether he was just reading the room. But Spielberg put his hand on Brian De Palma and said something to the effect of, because Julie Salomon was there for this. This might be the best black comedy since Dr. Strangelove. I don't know how you pulled it off. I thought you were sunk when all of these reports were coming out about the film was in trouble, but you did it. God bless you. Words to that effect. So with everybody celebrating, well, Goodfellas sucks. At least we've got Bonfire. Goodfellas opens the New York Film Festival. To what? To astonishing, extraordinary, stupendous rave reviews. Best film of Scorsese's career. And I thought Goodfellas and Raging Bull were the best films of their decade. This is better than both. Siskel and Ebert seeing it days before it premiered. This is the best film of Martin Scorsese's career. And we are both, Roger and I, huge fans of Raging Bull, of Taxi Driver, hell, of Mean Streets, of After Hours. This might be his best film. Cisco Lee, you can look it up on YouTube. 
I love that they have all of their videos on YouTube. So, in very short order, the studio executives get religion. Now they're just over the moon. They're happy that they misjudged it. See, that's the thing. There's levels of embarrassment. They didn't want to hate the movie Goodfellas. They just honestly thought it was a piece of crap. So when they got this news, they were super happy. And we're starting to see what Marty had told them, which is we're, we can get Pesci position. He's probably going to win supporting actor. He's extraordinary. And Leota's got a shot at best actor. And you're going to get, Marty's going to get director, et cetera, et cetera. The test screening process begins for Bonfire of the Vanities. De Palma finishes a cut and submits the film for the test screening process. They screen the film at various theaters across the country. You know, these sneak previews, you used to do it all the time. Uh, you know, you'd walk around a mall and somebody would pull you aside and say, hey, would you like to see a movie that's coming out next month or two months and take part in a survey? You know, you'll get complimentary drink, whatever it is. They test screen Bonfire of the Vanities and the scores are in the toilet. See, think about it. The executives watched an 80 to 90% cut with probably a temp score thought it was a masterpiece. The movie wasn't finished. De Palma, with that knowledge, finished the movie. And audiences just didn't like it. Kind of like how you had studio executives who hated Goodfellas, but almost everyone who watched that movie in its initial theatrical run came away with the same thing. If this isn't as good as The Godfather, it's in the conversation. This is an incredible film. So the exact opposite of the executives. Critics and moviegoers. And Bonfire of the Vanities ended up being a significant disappointment at the box office. The only major critic that I know of who really liked it was Rex Reed, who wrote for the New York Observer and he'd written for the Daily News. Terrific critic. He got that it was a black comedy and the stuff that other critics complained about didn't bother him. He gave it a very favorable review. But if you go on Rotten Tomatoes, I believe it's like maybe 25, 30%, which is better than I remember. My memory is of everybody savaging this film. My father saw it, he didn't hate it. He did not hate it. He didn't think it was as good as it could have been. He kept saying, they shouldn't have cast Tom Hanks. What about Morgan? Shouldn't have cast him either. Melanie? Yeah, they shouldn't have cast her either. Did they get any casting right? Yeah, F. Murray Abraham. <laughs> Saul Rubinek, okay. Other than that, nothing. So Julie Salomon's book, which is called The Devil's Candy, and is available at any library. It was that big of a nonfiction book. Um, what they were expecting to be the chronicle of a success was instead witness to a disaster. And, you know, Brian De Palma shrugged it off, and he ended up doing a movie called Raising Cain a couple of years later, I mean, it, I think it made money. It wasn't good. A lot of people like Lithgow, you know, John Lithgow played a lot of wacky characters. Um, then he did Carlito's Way, which I think is fantastic. And on the strength of Carlito's Way, and this is a little trivia that's readily available, but a lot of people don't know this. Brian De Palma, director of Scarface. Okay, okay. Director of Scarface. I, I didn't mention that earlier. De Palma. He did the first Mission Impossible. And 
I believe his direction of that movie, taking maximum advantage of a budget that was not nearly what the later Mission Impossible movies had been. I don't think the movie is, is like great. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun, but the way that he directed it, his, the tightness of his, the way that he had the camera set up, I mean, the scene with, with Tom Cruise trying to break into CIA headquarters is still an incredible sequence. And it's got De Palma's handprints all over it. You know, just like with The Untouchables, there are certain shots where you know the director is Brian De Palma. It couldn't be anybody else. But if anything, if you take anything out of this story, it is that even the smartest people in Hollywood, even the people whose job it literally is to decide what's good, what's not good, they make mistakes. And in this case, the executives at Warner Brothers got both of those films, they, they got them both so wrong, if they had tried, they couldn't have done what they did. You know they were giving honest opinions. They just fucked up, you know? And that's, that's the way it goes. That's why when you say nobody knows anything, it doesn't mean that people are stupid. It's that you can't predict. Can't predict how people are going to react to certain films. It's impossible. So on that note, we've come to the conclusion of episode one of Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind. I hope you've enjoyed this deep dive into Bonfire of the Vanities, Goodfellas, and the way that people sometimes get things completely wrong and it ends up being right and vice versa. Take care.